Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We spoke earlier today to the management team at Neo Metals, ASX listed project developer, uh, Chris Reed, Mike Tamlin, and of course, Jeremy McManus. Gives us a run through uh, two of their five projects that they're working on in great detail. So if you want our thoughts on that conversation and indeed the company itself, you can find that at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club, where you can also find other detailed company reports, commentary from market experts from around the world on a variety of companies and commodities. There's training videos on there. There's summaries of other interviews that we've done just to save you a little bit of time. And of course, there's a huge community of investors sharing their thoughts and ideas with each other. So do go along there now and uh, join the club and do that at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you? Very well, thank you, Matt. Well, look, uh, thank, thanks for joining us. Um, Please catch up with you. Your quarterly's come out. Um, some pretty nice uh, stuff in there, and we're going to hear hear all about it. And, but um, you've kindly agreed to come on and talk to us about the uh, lithium-ion recycling project and um, and also the vanadium recovery project. So, uh, good morning, Chris. I think we're going to speak to you first. How are you, sir? Yeah, very, very well. Very, very well. Thank you. How's life in Perth? Uh, I guess we're, we're, we're lucky to be in the most isolated city in the world for once. Right. Good, good, good. Okay. Well, like, um, you've, you've obviously, the quarterlies have um, come out, some, uh, some pretty good reading in there. Um, but before we kind of get into that, can you just remind people what Neo Metals is and then I'll pick it up from there? Yeah, sure, Matt. So Neo Metals is an innovative project developer. You know, we're looking at developing minerals and materials projects needed for a sustainable future. So we've 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 pivoted away away from some of our upstream mineral assets into more materials recovery from stockpiles and recycling of some of the products that we can produce at the end of their lives. So you know, I think. Uh, uh, the, the the crossover between all of our projects is a very, very strong link with the EV and energy storage thematics. And and in pursuit of developing projects there, I guess the innovative way is, is how we apply some of our technical knowledge to try to decarbonise the production uh, processes that we apply. Um, and so, you know, we'll go through today how lithium battery recycling is is absolutely required if we want to take down the carbon footprint of these EVs. Uh, similarly, the, the vanadium recovery from steel slags actually sequesters carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, uh, you know, producing the, uh, what I call the cleanest, greenest, cheapest, from a cost perspective, vanadium on the planet. Okay, there's a, there's a there's a bit of terminology here which is going to be new to a lot of people because you, you you come from a mining background, but now you're as I noted from your annual report, sort of inserting yourself into the energy storage mega trend. What what does that mean to you? Yeah, so look, you know, I, I think uh, from a senior management level, you know, you have to have a look out at the playing field, you know, see where the wind's blowing, which way you should be heading, you know once you've identified what these trends uh, to break away from some of the cyclical nature of, of some of the older world commodities, uh, exposing ourselves, which was a deliberate choice to that thematic, then sort of distills down the commodities that are most effective. And 
you know, we've got five or six of the top 10 most positively affected commodities uh, from this EV and energy storage trend. Uh, and so, you know, that's, that's fantastic. You know, we, we should uh, do well out of that from, you know, where the revenue demand and supply balance indicates. And then I think, you know, the, the trend towards ESG and, and, and more sustainable uh, business methods being more accountable and responsible and rep reporting about that. Um, you know, we recently put out our first report, but I mean, we made a conscious decision to, to look at the other end of the spectrum away from minerals into the materials that we make from the minerals and then how we recover and recycle them to reduce the footprint, to, to close the loop, to reduce the, the scarcity, um, you know, the ethical um, recovery uh, of these minerals. And, and this whole trend with decarbonisation um, is something that we uh, have embraced in the last couple of years and adapting our flow sheets and how we develop these projects to have um, the most sustainable long-term business. I mean, it's, it's risk. You know, you got to have a look at the risk and the rewards of the projects that, that we do from the evaluation studies and all the financial models. But, you know, overlaying that, it, it's got to be sustainable. You could have a fantastic project, but if you don't do it in a sustainable way, keeping to best practice, you might find that your ability to exploit that asset is far shorter duration than you would have expected. It's kind of interesting, actually, because yeah, I think the grounds are shifting here and funds are holding company, especially in the mining space, accountable. And there's a, there's a bit of terminology, again, I want, want you to help the audience with here, which is green circular economy and, and where you sit in that loop, as I think as you described it. Sure. I mean, you have a look at uh, the, you know, populations increasing. Uh, and so the raw materials that we require to maintain or increase the standard of living um, means that we have to have, we need to mine, we need to produce more, you know, agricultural products and we need to, to mine more materials. And then therefore your footprint gets bigger and bigger. Now, is that sustainable? Um, you know, some of the old world mining and processing techniques, pyrometallurgy, things like that, big open cut mines. And, and you know, you will always need to do that, but in equal parts, at the end of the lives, we've been stockpiling uh, materials, you know, some stuff ends up in landfills. So what we have to look at, you know, if you want truly low carbon footprint, um, you want it sourced ethically, locally for the security supply, because, you know, if you have a look at lithium batteries, you know, you've got lithium from South America or Australia and it gets processed up in Asia and then finds its way into batteries the last thing you want to do is put it in the ground and keep buying fresh material. You know, for example, you look at, um, you know, uh, a ton of batteries produces, to make a ton of batteries, it's about eight tonnes of CO2 if you keep using the old world mineral supplies. If you use conventional pyrometallurgy and, and, and refine it uh, and smelt it down, you halve it uh, down to four tonnes and without... Uh, process and some of the other leading hydromet processes, we're getting that down to the hundreds of kilos. So you're making a massive reduction in in the footprint of these cars. Now EVs will decarbon will take 
much less carbon is produced than if you had fossil fuels. But if you, you know, they start behind the eight ball uh, in relation to their carbon footprint because you've got to put this big battery and it's got a big footprint in it. You catch it up over time because you're not burning uh, hydrocarbons. But, you know, what we can do is actually make them at parity. Um, so, you know, I think if we if we truly, uh, you know, want to have that sustainable business, we, we have to acknowledge that the goalposts have shifted and, and that to be successful in the long term, that we have to change the way that we approach our business. And, you know, we, we I, I think it's serendipity that, you know, it's, uh, we, we headed that way and now everything's caught up and, you know, it's, um, it's becoming sort of de rigueur. It, it, it is. It certainly is in Europe where you're operating. So one last bit of definition. I just want to be on the same um, playing field with regards to um, definitions and vocabulary, okay, which is around um, a phrase you used earlier was project developer. Okay, so you haven't got one project. Yeah. You've got a bunch of them. So what yeah. are you doing? Talk, talk us through what, why you've set it up like that rather than focus on one project. Yeah, right. Well, if you if you have a look at asset allocations, I think gener everyone generally accepts the the value of some diversity. So we've got exposures to, to various commodities all within that mega trend. So you know we're happy with that. So what we try to do is to um, acquire the assets in the commodities that that we like, and we add value with the drill bit and in the test lab, um, creating size creating value in, uh, in efficient, sustainable recovery processes to make products out of that um, and build the value of the pie. And then what we try to do is bring in big partners to, to take the risk out of it. So we create the reward and we're prepared to share that with big partners who maximise the probability of turning that into meaningful cash flow in the shortest period of time with me putting my hand in my pocket for the least amount of money. That's pretty much what we've done to date. That's worked out reasonably uh, well for us. We've got a fantastic balance sheet. We uh, have in excess of 80 million Australian dollars in cash and listed investments. We've returned more than $55 million as dividends to our shareholders in the last five years. We're able to take our two most advanced projects through to final investment decisions and indeed, you know, into the construction phases without needing external capital. Okay. Well, we're going to hear about both of those in a second. Um, let's talk about your the, the, the quarterly just come out. Um, been a fairly quiet yep. quarter, hasn't it? Mate, we've, we've got 20-odd people here working their tail off. So, you know, look, uh, from a very, very high level, we have hit – a number of significant technical and commercial milestones as it relates to the lithium battery. I'll, I'll let Mike, who's our COO and, and, and runs the lithium side of the business, talk more about Primobius, which is our incorporated joint venture with the Germans. And that was the major commercial milestone for, for that business. You know, we now have, uh, we are now co-funding a demonstration plant and the final evaluation studies for what will be Europe's uh, largest lithium battery recycling business. Um, our, our partner is, is, you know, more than 130 years old, one of the biggest plant builders 
uh, in Europe, 14,500 employees in 95 sites around the world. So, you know, we're indeed, and, and, and that, ha- that takes risk out of the execution phase for the value that we have created in taking the project from its, its genesis through to completing a pilot in the engineering studies. You know, they've done their due diligence, we've formed the joint venture, we've, we're, we're bound and, uh, and we are moving heaven and earth to, to get this done. Um, and so that's probably the biggest aspect from that business, but Michael will go into the wider business a bit later. In terms of the vanadium recovery project, you know, probably the, the greatest drop in risk for that project has been the successful operation of a 100-hour continuous um, mini pilot plant program where we process samples from uh, Sweden uh, in it uh, and Finland as well. And, you know, we were able to better our bench scale batch test work results. We were able to produce exceptional purities, you know, well in excess of the market spec and among the highest that I can remember anyone ever offering into a market. And we were able to massively reduce residence time. You know, not only does the chemistry work, it works better on a continuous basis than it worked in the batch. Uh, and we've been able to cut our residence time to less than half of what we thought was required. So that's got very positive OPEX and CAPEX implications. And we commenced uh, the pre-feasibility study uh, on that. That'll, that'll be managed by Hatch. So that project's got a super firm foundation in a, in a 10-year supply agreement to take feedstock from SSAB. Uh, and we've got a... a, a a partner there who's got great local skills uh, and so we will comfortably guide that we in in all honesty will accelerate that it's going that well for us in terms of the lithium refinery project you know it was business as usual the the class three feasibility study continues it's now in its final phases um locked down a site you know we are interacting well with our potential uh, joint venture partner Manakaran up there, a large Indian energy trader. Um, the Barambi Titanium Vanadium project in the background there, we've now settled on a final flow sheet, which we think gives the most efficient uh, operation, bearing in mind the capital efficiency. Uh, and so we are prepared to, to, to look at that from a more, uh, a smaller scale, more capital efficient uh, development. And uh, the Mount Edwards Lithium Project, you know, in the quarter, we continue to, to methodically work our way through the uh, tw- now 12 nickel sulfide deposits, increasing the resources and making some exploration success. So, you know, I think uh, it's been a very, very productive quarter. Okay. I'm, and again, I'm, try- I'm trying to sort of picture what, 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 what this looks like for me as an investor is... Um, you're kind of, you're, well, I guess the clue is in your phrase project developer. You're in this development stage, which is typically in mining context, a very quiet period. You're quietly, furiously pedaling with, uh, with feet underwater with regards to flow sheets and, and, and technical diligence and, and moving things forward. When do you think yeah. we investors can start to see some movement in terms of trying to understand the, the revenues or flow of revenues from this succession of projects? Yeah, so look, I think if you have a look at, you know, how we report them, how we allocate capital, um, you know, we've all got a, a set amount of time. 
we want to get the most benefit about where we apply the elbow grease and the most return for our dollar. Uh, we are no different. So, you know, the lithium battery recycling uh, is arguably the most advanced. Uh, it has the most robust economics. It now has a multi-billion dollar execution partner for that project. Um, you know, we've got the demonstration plant to be completed in the first half of next calendar year, the evaluation studies and a final investment decision on that in the back half of uh, that year might overlap. I mean, it really gets down to the success uh, of securing the commercial feedstock. Um, and, you know, to that end, we recently announced our first MOU with a, with a cell maker in Europe. So we're very, very confident and very pleased I guess with the, the top pool uh, through some of the uh, negotiations that, that we're having, uh, courtesy of the, the big SMS relationship. So, you know, we, uh, that, that is maximising the chances of us getting significant commercial contracts. I mean, SMS are there to build not one 20,000 tonne plant, not one 200,000 tonne plant, which is the stage two. You know, we're looking to deploy multiple plants in multiple jurisdictions of multiple sizes and multiple increasing sizes. So that, that, that augurs pretty well there. Um, and so that's getting, that's getting the most elbow grease. The vanadium recovery project we're accelerating. But what's what, So, if, if I may, Chris, so but give me give me an idea of timing here, because I think that's what's missing in the marketplace. Sure. Just saying, when yeah, do these so things look, come? So look, you in? know, end of end of end of twenty one, you will know definitively the first stage of the lithium battery recycling business with an FID shortly after. Similarly, in twenty one, you'll have the pre feasibility study on the vanadium. You will have. By the end of 22, you will be in a, a position where we've had the full feasibility study and an FID needs to be made by 31 December 22. So think recycling first, 21, vanadium recovery, 22. The lithium refinery pro, uh, project could be 23. Uh, the Barambi titanium vanadium project, it is really offtake dependent. I mean, we've got a grant of mining lease. We've got approvals to build the plant. Um, you know, we're in a very, very fortunate position. It's excellent infrastructure, but we just need to negotiate with the, the Chinese. And, uh, you know, we've got samples going up there, being evaluated. So, um, you know, that's where that's sitting at. In terms of, of Mount Edwards, I, you know, we've got... Uh, you know, a stated position there where, you know, it's got significant um, potential for us. We are investigating in parallel with building the size of the pie, you know, evaluating the best corporate structure for that to be in. And, you know, that may involve us returning that back to the shareholders at some point in the future. But we, you know, I, I, I doubt, you know, given that that's much later. I mean, if you look at nickel and when you want to be producing nickel, uh, for us, mid-2025 to the back half of 2030 is when you're going to be delivering into a fantastically strong nickel market. You know, do you want to be mining nickel today? Well, it's just under 16,000 bucks a tonne. I realise that's up from 12 and a half, 13, perhaps earlier in the year. But, you know, for us at, at prices above 20 and 25,000 tonnes, 25,000 US dollars a tonne that, you know, it, it, it's just a shot in the arm because, you know, it is, uh, 
millions and millions and millions of tonnes at just under 2% nickel. So the grades are very sensitive to grades. That's that's quite exciting in its own right, but um, maybe we'll come back yeah, to so, you know, nickel another got, day. That, that's, yeah. that's pretty spectacular. Um, okay, well, look. You've got a pretty good hand if you're in poker parlance. <laughs> you do, you do. Okay, so, so what we're seeing there is a succession of projects, 21, 22, 23, 24, and then nickel, obviously, but a optionality there on, on, on timing sometime after yeah, 2025 and beyond. Um, do you think your shareholders understand that kind of sequencing that, you, that you're planning? Okay, I think, you know, you, you, you do get uh, discounts for a conglomerate when you're in the development phase, right? I mean, all these mine, until they're making you money, they are contingent liabilities, right? We, I think every investor will, will know that. And so, you know, what we've tried to use our NAUS is with the most to make to take the most risk out of it, to make it the most probable of returning meaningful cash. So, you know, I can remember, you know, when we developed Mount Marion in 2015, you know, no one thought we would do it. That, you know, it, and Mount Marion is the world's second largest source of hard rock lithium. It's producing at an annualized rate of over half a million tonnes of spodumene concentrate. It supplies somewhere between 15 and 20% of the lithium in the world. So one in five statistical phones, laptops or whatever you'll find will have lithium from Mount Marion in it. So, you know, that and, you know, by investing in a down cycle or when it's not popular and we were in gold and lithium at that stage, and then the cycle, so the lithium cycle picked up, we were ready, you know, we had a granted mining lease, we had approval to, to build the plant, we had cleared the plant site, we dropped down um, some of the utilities, you know, we managed to grab China's fastest growing lithium producer as a cornerstone investor and partner in it and off taker. Uh, and then we had... Australia's largest contract processor of minerals, uh, a company called Mineral Resources Limited, build, own and operate the world's largest greenfields lithium concentrator. It was twice as big as Greenbushes at that time. So, you know, we were able to turn a $3 million investment into more than $200 million. And that enables us to, to you know, return that money back to the shareholders and invest in projects that we believe there is significant value in. And, and then as you get those partners, uh, you know, you, you don't get sick of, of dealing with big partners like that to, to make businesses that you have modest investments in become very, very big concerns, you know. So people would say, oh, well, you know, you did a deal with, with SMS and you know, they're earning 50%. I said, well, you know, in all honesty, they've got to build uh, and operate these things. Um, they're there to build very, very big plants, and we're in Australia, and they're in Ger you know they're in Germany or Europe, which is outside of China, the second <laughs> fastest growing EV and lithium battery uh, making hub in the world. So you know, uh, have you halved the economic return? Yeah, that may be so, but I reckon I've multiplied the potential scale by five to ten times. Okay, so cookie 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 cutter approach. Yeah, okay, it's worked for you in the past, and you're you're going to apply that same methodology with this project development model going forward with your 
five or so projects uh, currently. We should probably move on to talk to Mike, who's been sitting sure. there patiently, who is the joint MD of Primobius, um, which is the JV with SMS in Germany. Um, hi, Mike, how are you, sir? Hi, Matt. Fine, thank you. Are you joining I've us from Perth? Oh, you've been listening. Well, that's, that's, that's good. <laughs> We've got one listener. That's fantastic. Um, she, you should, you should, um, first of all, are you also in Perth? I am. I'm in the same office as Chris and Jeremy. Okay, fine. And what's your background? Well, I started life as a metallurgist, uh, but have worked in the commercial area uh, for a lot longer than I was a technical person. I've been with the company now for five or six years and have uh, been all along the journey with the recycling since we started it. Right. So you joint MD at Primobius, which is the joint venture with, with SMS in Germany. Um, this is around the battery recycling. So what have you been tasked by Chris to do? In fact, what's the expectation from SMS of your role? We're here to build a company and to build a successful and profitable recycling business. Um, the first steps, though, are to prove up what we've uh, piloted and to do it on a demonstration scale continuously and allow the engineers to have enough information arising from that to be able to scale up into a commercial operation uh, within a, a couple of years. Okay, so we, we heard Chris earlier talk about um, the fact that hydrometallurgy is a better, more efficient uh, way of recycling. So what what have you put together there? I mean, is this proprietary to you? Um, do you think yours is the best in the world? I mean, why, why should we be listening to you about your recycling techniques? It's been quite an interesting story, Matt. Uh, we've uh, torn up two process designs along the way to this uh, successful design. Um, hydrometallurgy is uh, a very interesting approach because it has the opportunity to fulfill a lot of the goals that we've set ourselves. And I, I think it's very important to look at this because superficially uh, the process is relatively simple and straightforward as good processes are, but in detail, it is quite complicated. And uh, we're trying to unscramble a very complicated egg in the sense of lithium ion batteries. There's been a lot of energy and effort go into a very elaborate transformation of metal salts into uh, intimately combined uh, metals as cathodes and anodes and so on. Our task is to unscramble that egg and the goal is to reproduce those uh, critical metal uh, compounds that have gone into making the battery such that they can be reused. And we've got a few other associated goals there. Do it with a low carbon footprint, of course, to be very efficient and to maximise the recovery from these uh, batteries, avoid putting them into landfill, do it safely, and safely means safely for the people who are working in the plant and safe for the community, and very much so at the forefront of the mind is to do it profitably. Okay, so wh what are you recovering? I mean, uh, uh, copper, um, or copper, lithium, cobalt, but what sort of recovery rates are you getting? Is it genuinely better than the rest? Yes. Uh, well, firstly, yes, it is. Um, we have uh, tested the process uh, up till now. We're undergoing further optimization, but 
we're certainly in the 80% of recovery of all of the comp components of the battery. So starting actually, if, if I might just have a little prop, that is uh, what is known as a cylindrical battery. It's a large version of a AA cell. And it, it has a lot of packaging components such as steel and plastic. So we need to recover those and reuse them. They can be reused in secondary steel mills and so on. Uh, plastics have uses in compounds for road making and other materials. But when we get to the real metallic compounds of value in the uh, battery, we have copper and uh, aluminium foils plus the uh, graphite uh, anode compound. We have the uh, metal uh, cathode compound and we have hydrocarbons. So we have to pull all of those apart and then focus on, in particular, uh, high recovery of the cobalt, the nickel, the manganese and lithium from the, the real active ingredients of the cell. Okay, and so give me an idea, because this is you, you were talking about a starter plant initially, right? So you're going to say, well, let's 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 get this thing going commercially. Let's make some money from this. And I've seen some numbers here uh, from a, a brokerage in London, and it's suggesting that the the um, I think they're talking about the net attributable dollar value to you guys just from the starter plan of somewhere in excess of about seventy million Aussie dollars, right? So is that, does that number seem about right to you? Well, that's their number, and I'm not sure which broker you're talking about. But, you know, we have, uh, we have our own numbers from scoping study, which we've published, and we are now uh, furthering those studies. I think uh, it, it is, a, I think, uh, appropriate to say at the moment that battery technologies are constantly changing. So... What we actually feed into the plant will affect in, in smaller amounts the uh, revenue up and down and the scope in terms of capacity of the plant will have a big impact. Okay, so, so, so how big um, is the starter plant then? Give me an, I, I'm trying to, in my mind, work out what the opportunity is here. So what, how big is this yeah, starter plant? Yeah, so our scoping study, it was based on 20,000 tonnes of battery scrap input per year. And so that's really where we start. Um, we looked at smaller capacities, but you need to achieve a balance from economy of scale when you're doing something like this. And some of the, uh, the equipment sizes really only work at that scale as well. But we also believe that from the studies we've done of battery scrap arisings, that it is an appropriate scale plant. And from there, we would, I think, be looking potentially to go higher by an order of magnitude at first. Um, and I think we are going to have a challenge uh, that we need to really keep up with the uh, scrap arisings and the end-of-life batteries accelerating at quite a rate. So... Well, that, that, that's, that's, a, that's an important point. Okay, so again, people are going to, they always come to us, the questions coming in here, where are these guys getting their feedstock from? Is it sustainable? How long are these contracts? So, I mean, that's an important part of this. So who are you partnering with to ensure that you've got the feed, not just for the starter plant, but as you talk about, as you scale up? It's a very important point for us to have secure feed. Uh, there is a fair bit of uncertainty 
in any operation until you have secured the feed. In a mining operation, of course, you may, you talk about a resource. In the case of this, we talk about batteries and scrap materials. Um, batteries can be materials that have been used and reached the end of their life. But what we find the most predictable early uh, sources of uh, batteries are the manufacturing scrap, where uh, making batteries is superficially simple, but uh, when it comes to complying with QA and uh, vehicle manufacturers' demands, it, it results in quite a high degree of scrap. You know, we, we've heard of numbers in the 20% of scrap generated from plant operations, whereas in a mature operation, uh, you would be looking somewhere between five and 10% as an objective probably, but given that there are a lot of these gigafactories starting up, by almost by definition, there will be high scrap rates from a lot of factories initially. So the question is, the question still is, have you got feed for your plant and beyond? Or if you haven't, when, when do you secure that? We've announced an MOU with a company called InnoBat. This is the first battery manufacturer that we have arrangements with. We're working on other arrangements. InnoBat is a company that is uh, establishing uh, pilot uh, manufacturing followed by volume manufacturing in Slovak Republic. And they have also recognised the need from their side to be able to dispose of the battery scrap from their manufacturing effectively. And I might say also in compliance with regulations which are coming as well as in some places here already that are quite onerous and require very effective methods of dealing with scrap. Does their contract fill the starter plant or is that just part of the solution? That will be part of the solution. It depends a little bit on uh, their success as a manufacturer. I wouldn't like to, uh, wouldn't like to tempt fate, but uh, if they had a lesser success in the early times, of course, there would be more scrap. But we're really anticipating that they will be doing a pretty good job and it will be a part, uh, a part of the initial scale. And we're now talking with other uh, potential uh, suppliers of that. Well, that was my next question is like, who's responsible for going and finding and having these conversations and agreeing contracts with, you know, other yeah, InnoBats around Europe, because there's some pretty big players and there's some, you know, smaller players and it's a growing economy uh, in, in Europe. There's a lot of investment going in, but you, 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 the big driver in this is getting enough feed in here. So are you managing that or have you, are you partnering with someone else to do that? How does it work? Yes. Well, we have Primobius as a partnership effectively between uh, Neometals and SMS. We're jointly managing that. Neometals has been working on this uh, supply side of the equation for a couple of years now and established a lot of relationships. But I think one key thing to just to show how there is such synergy in our partnership with SMS is that uh, for people to place their faith in safe disposal of batteries with a small company on the other side of the world, it's relatively difficult to have a safe pair of hands in the sense of having a large company domiciled in Europe, it does help uh, to complete the equation because 
um, we need to convince people that we'll be around in the long term, as well as having a suitable method of dealing with their battery uh, waste. And then, of course, uh, we have the same uh, challenge that we're dealing with with automotive OEMs with a longer term view that as batteries reach the end of life in new EVs, which is some years away, then larger quantities of batteries will need to be disposed of equally effectively. Okay, so I mentioned earlier when I was talking to Chris about this kind of green circular economy. It's, it's, it's a big deal here in Europe. You know, we've, we've got billions and billions of um, euros being spent uh, developing this, but it, it, it also means that people are accountable throughout the food chain. So are you getting more traction because of your hydrometallurgy solution than, say, people with, you know, pyrometallurgical solutions or just, you know, regular regular recycling solutions? Um, because I'm, what, what I'm trying to get an idea of is like, have you got a better chance than uh, most of getting these feed uh, agreements in place because of your, the, the flow sheet that you've come up with? It certainly helps. Uh, I think the direction of European regulations also helps in the sense that as we move towards higher mandated uh, rates of recovery from batteries and from vehicles, uh, hydrometallurgy will uh, really show a clean set of heels to uh, pyrometallurgy solutions. And uh, it's not to disparage pyrometallurgy as a, a way of making metals, but if you put a battery into a furnace, literally, then uh, a lot of materials such as the hydrocarbons and the plastics are vaporised or turned to ash. Um, some of the metals are smelted and tend to congregate and go into a metal uh, uh, that can be further processed. But then uh, other materials like lithium will go into a residue or a slag. So pyrometallurgy for us after our study is not the long-term solution to high recovery rates, let alone energy efficient uh, processing okay so and, and sorry for going at you here but I'm, I'm in my head trying to work out how i kind of feed some numbers into a model right so feedstock good tech next so in terms of the ideal scale of a plant going forward i mean what does that look like in in comparison to say the starter plant what, what's the optimum size you think that's uh to some extent the 64 dollar question because it does depend on the volume of battery arises. But um, we started with 20,000 because that, in our view, is the minimum economic size. I would uh, anticipate going by some of the uh, battery production and battery use charts that have been published by others, that 200,000 tonnes uh, is quite a, a feasible economic scale. Wow. But um, what we also have to look at there is the regional disposition of the arisings. And we need to come up with a, a, an efficient uh, compromise between one centralised massive extraction plant that has ultimate economies of scale versus the logistics, not to mention the uh, CO2 arisings from uh, transport from one location to the other. And that was actually at the heart of why we set our sights on Europe instead of, say, Australia. Firstly, 
Australia for the moment and for the, the near future doesn't have enough batteries. Secondly, if we were to import battery black mass or batteries from overseas and focus on doing it in our backyard, we'd be generating all sorts of transport issues some of them insurmountable when it comes to regulations and CO2. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So you've got to work out how you scale this thing up, but it, it, you, if assuming the feedstock is there and assuming the contracts are in place and they're long-term and they're, they, they, they kind of, the numbers are okay, you 200,000 tonne per annum plant is, is not unreasonable. Is that, and you're saying that, that, do you just scale that up in one location or do you try and replicate that elsewhere? That's the decision for down the line. Well, we, we're sowing the seeds now, though, I think, Matt. Um, one way to approach this is to do what we call a hub-and-spoke uh, approach to it. Um, the, the least of, uh, costly part of the process is the destruction of the batteries in a physical sense, which we call the shredding plant. Um, the, the more meaty cost for us is the extraction and refining plant. So I think we'll end up with multiple extraction and refining plants, but fewer of them than the so-called spokes where we're shredding these batteries. So we'll have uh, geographically distributed shredding plants and a few regional uh, hub uh, extraction and refining plants. Okay. That also goes into how easy are they to work? And the refining plant is more complicated, and it also needs to make refined metals that are going to go straight back into battery cathodes. So it then becomes a, an efficiency and a an operational uh, expertise issue that you're better off to have fewer of these refining plants so you operate really well and can uh, produce materials that can be qualified for the battery manufacturers. Okay, now SMS is a multi-billion dollar operation. I think Chris mentioned that earlier. Um, they've got expertise in, in building uh, out for sure, and they've also got uh, a network in, in across Europe. So great partner to have. But what are they like outside of Europe, or is this just an entirely Europe-focused project? Uh, Europe is uh, the start of it for us and for SMS. Uh, under the banner Primovius. SMS, I think, from memory, uh, correct, uh, stand corrected, but I think they operate in about 84 countries uh, and they have delivered projects uh, in the uh, Americas, in Asia, across Europe. And so I think we have a very good partner from that point of view and a very well uh, capable partner. So. Um, Europe is the starting point, and it makes a lot of sense because if you look at where EVs are, are finding their feet most effectively outside of China, you have to look to Europe, I think possibly suburban Japan, but uh, North America is, uh, is lagging that somewhat, as is Australia and a lot of, a lot of other countries that have distance. Uh, so. Um, Europe is a very sensible starting point, followed by others at the uh, appropriate time. Okay, so you, you picked the right partner. They, they've got the balance sheet and the, and the reach um, internationally. Okay, well, like, um, like I appreciate your time, Mike. That's a nice, uh, well, lovely to meet you. And um, 
you've given me a sense of the the numbers here, and I I'll, I will be using that uh, uh, London brokers numbers to kind of help me map this out, and especially if you do move to that point of being able to um, scale this up to two hundred thousand ton a, pl- a year plant. Um, appreciate your time, thank you, and we'll we'll speak to you soon. I hope. Thank you, Matt. I look forward to it. Brilliant, Chris. How are you? What do you think of that? Good. He knows his stuff, that, he's, that boy, uh, he's got a background in, in, <laughs> in metallurgy and marketing. I mean, you know, if you, if you, uh, you know, I guess if you came from another planet and had a look at that thing, it, it actually looks more like a, a base metals refinery. You're just not putting a mineral concentrate, you're putting the battery, which is the highest grade known combination of those materials. And so, you know, you, you're pulling nickel sulfate, cobalt sulfate, lithium sulfate, manganese sulfate out the back end of these plants. And, uh, you know, as our scoping study attested to, um, you are pulling, it doesn't matter what commodity you want to put 100% of your operating costs against, you're down at the bottom end of the cost curve. Do you you think- And and so you've got to solve. Can I just say a question for you? I know you're putting you're you're putting up these sulfates at the back end. Is there something in this which says that you know in terms of the accountability in green circular economies? Do people can you yeah. imagine a, a position where people pay a premium for that because it is recycled? Well, it's conflict free. You don't have to worry about the ethical nature. It's local. It's interesting. Uh, it's you interesting are one. you are washing it away of all its sins in the original supply chain. It's an interesting one, and I suspect something that you know—a question that will be asked sort of nearer the time and for, you know further down the supply chain. Um, but it'll be interesting. Put it this way: whatever we sell, we can sell a green contract because we'll undertake that whatever we sell, we'll gladly take it back and recycle. Yeah, and you know we, we've talked in other shows on our, when we're talking about sort of um, ESG and green, you know green circular economy and uh, and, and, net and zero. hence the name of the company. You know, Primobius has got the Mobius loop, so a never-ending loop. Yeah, yeah. But we're, I was going to talk about you know, um, you know, car- carbon credits and uh, tax credits and so forth. You know, the, where governments yeah. are trying to incentivize this sort of behaviour. Um, That's certainly relevant for the vanadium recovery project. Right. Well, why don't we talk about that? Because I do. I do this is the second one I want to sure. talk about. So um, maybe again, just g- give us a, a quick summary of that for people who haven't picked this up yet, and then we'll kind of get into the detail of what you're up to there. Yeah, sure. Um, so we are the largest shareholder in a in an unlisted company called Critical Metals, and they've been operating in Scandinavia for about ten years. and And through their contacts, they were able to introduce the business opportunity to us to secure the highest grade access to the highest grade vanadium stockpiles on Earth. Uh, and it comes as a unique combination of the local iron ores that are mined up in Sweden that contain vanadium in combination uh, with their steel smelters that produce this material as a byproduct that has been stockpiled at three of their steel making facilities for the best part of 30 years. Um, And so we said to them, well, look, um, you're up in a, in a, a greener part of the world, right? So we're going to have to come up with a, a very eco-friendly, sustainable flow sheet to to exploit these. Um, we've got a good balance sheet, so we can assuage the concerns of the SSAB. We would like to 
earn into uh, the business uh, a 50% stake by funding the evaluation studies and undertaking those ourselves because we have a pretty strong technical team here that is used to following a, a pretty disciplined evaluation methodology. And uh, so what we've done is uh, take that through a scoping study, then secure the samples, bring them over here, run them through a, a continuous mini pilot plant we ran for almost 100 hours continuously grinding up the slag digesting it uh recovering the vanadium purifying it and making it into a product so really proving the chemistry on a on a, a continuous basis as opposed to you know batch basis or what we refer to as bucket chemistry that underpins most of the scoping studies so you know, Critical was able to secure a 10-year uh, conditional supply agreement with SSAB, conditional that we make an investment decision by the end of December 2022, um, to purchase a total of 2 million tonnes of the existing stockpiles on the surface. So we figured, well, as, you know, we have some pedigree in uh, titanium vanadium and these types of deposits. This is... Uh, an ore body that's five times higher grade than what we've got in Australia. It's already been mined. It's already been processed. It's sitting above the ground. So there's no mining or uh, upstream beneficiation risk. Uh, so we've removed that and we've developed now the process to recover that. And, and we actually use in the flow sheet at, at a, at, a feed rate if we're feeding 200,000 tons of slag in the front end we'll sequester about 65,000 tons of CO2 out of the atmosphere uh, into a tailings product which which makes it which takes a previously metallic residue and actually makes it a carbonate which is inert and uh, pretty much safe to store long term so it's uh, you know it's a real credit to our metallurgists uh, and engineers who have come up with the process and de-risked it to the point now where we've moved into uh, a pre-feasibility to be managed by Hatch. Uh, and, you know, we have undertaken grade confirmation drilling on the highest grade stockpile uh, up at Lulia and we will shortly do the balance at Rahi in Finland and Oxalasund in Sweden. Uh, we have collected... Uh, bulk samples, representative bulk samples, and they are currently on the water uh, back to Australia where we will run them through a pilot plant next year to accelerate the project. So I've got to say, uh, you know, you've taken the time that's normally necessary for the mining feasibility, that's gone. And now we're, because the stockpiles are already sitting there, we can sample them with great confidence um, you know, Lulia into a dump of, you know, circa half a million tonnes, we put 55 drill holes in. So, um, and we've got fantastic confidence in what SSAB, I mean, they were measuring it, their grade as a tailings because they're steel makers. But that tailings now our ore and, uh, you know, we're super happy with, with what we see. No, I, um, but I need to kind of get to the commercial bit for these guys again, because again, we're just constantly trying to work out what the potential is here. So I, I get it. Sure. It's it's not mining. There's no mining risk. This is all at surface, and there is a lot of it. Brilliant. Yeah. 
But where do you capture the value? Because you've got a few options here. Vanadium is very popular at the moment. You know, people, people, people are talking about, you know, use in vanadium uh, redox float batteries. Obviously, there's a huge uh, stainless steel market. You know, there, there's lots of ways that you can you can monetize this or you can carry on downstream yourself. You know, we, we saw a recent report from uh, Group 5 Metals talking talking about, you know, construct of new vanadium in car batteries. So, and if you're such, you know, the purity levels that you're you're seeing, you've got optionality, I suspect, but you've also got a responsibility to your shareholders to monetize this thing as quickly as possible. So what sure. are the plans going forward? Yeah, so look, for us uh, is to get it through the evaluation stages and to have the highest confidence in the numbers, both the operating and capital cost, and then in parallel secure the best off-takers and financing deal that we can avail ourselves of, you know, the green funds. I mean, we're, we're going to be, uh, it'll have a net negative carbon footprint, this plant. Uh, it'll be using uh, renewable energy to drive it. It'll have, um, you know, the highest purity product in the market. It'll be at the lowest point in the cost curve. Um, you know, we, we are into taking as much risk out of it. So if you had a look at the scoping study and, you know, we normally put a few hollow logs in there. I mean, in the capital cost of 159 million, we had, uh, we had $46 million worth of uh, engineering, procurement, construction fees and contingencies and that sort of stuff. And what we've been able to do in the continuous mini pilot plant is actually reduce the residence times by 50%. So, you know, in terms, you know, for a given size, we can get more output, we can make the plant smaller, we've got lots of opportunities, and we'll continue to do that through the full-scale pilot. Um, and and so, if you know, if you ha have a look at the high level, you know, what does it mean on a 100% basis uh, using, you know, what I would say is reasonably conservative, notwithstanding, you know, the accuracy levels with scoping studies and stuff. Life of plant revenue, about 100 million US. Uh, Pre-tax operating cash flow, about 60 million US. Um, but, you know, the real, the, the salient point is you're down the bottom end of the cost curve. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a tier one project, notwithstanding its scale. Um, but, you know, it's a, it's a flow sheet that we're actually considering, well, you know, can we use this on some of the other battery materials? Like if they're in a form there that we can leach them. I mean, the, the process, it, it's our proprietary process and we'll license that into the, this new business uh, as well as being the biggest equity holder on the other half uh, of the, of the project. Um, you know, it's, uh, I think it's an exceptional opportunity for us to create uh, a project that's got scale and overlap into to other commodities you know they, they sort of cross pollinate to to some extent when you you work out that you can you've got conventional equipment mild alkaline temperature uh, solutions that sequester carbon and you start thinking, well, if I have to decarbonize supply chains, which ones in the commodities that we're in, could this potentially have some application? And, and you know, um, you know, we're not going for, you know, the traditional asset 
in you know sulf sulfuric acid, which is cheap and abundant because you'll have a sulfate tail. Now, in the battery recycling, our products will come out as sulfates because that's what the cathode makers use in the production of their cathodes, and our tailing will be ammonium sulfate, right, which is fertilizer, which gets returned to the earth and it makes plants grow. So, you know, it's it's it, it's a mindset. And look, you know, I mean, and, and, and some of the that sort of stuff is R and D. I mean, if you knew what you were doing, it wouldn't be research and development, would it? No, but so, but but this I mean, we've we've spoken to other, with, you know, two significant um, vanadium producers. Obviously, they're they're miners, but yep. um, when they've got it above ground, they've also decided to move, um, you know, further down the supply chain and capture some of the value there. So sure. one's talking about being a a, a chemical minerals electrolytes. Company. There you go. You know, one's looking at uh, yeah. energy um, storage in the shape of VRFBs, and and that all well, that's good. But sure. you—that's revenue enhancement, not right. sustainability or cost right. reduction. So, I mean, if you're a miner, you're in a cost reduction. If you can't reduce, you know, it, the, the ore tells you how it can come out. If it has to come out the conventional way, it has to come out the conventional way, and the only uh, arrow left in your quiver is to uh, is to increase your revenue going downstream. I mean, we found that in Mount Marion. We retained offtake to go into lithium chemicals. The only thing better than lithium chemicals is recycling. We're not going into cathodes or battery making. That's just, you know, we don't have that skill set. But recycling these using the skills that we have in the conversion of industrial minerals into advanced materials, we apply it at the end of life. Yeah, I mean, so, it was, but, so and, and don't take this the wrong way, Chris, but, you know, the, the fact that you, um, through critical minerals you've captured this you know, extremely, extremely large, or access to extremely large uh, tailings deposit where you can re recover vanadium. It's kind, it's kind of easy for you guys. I can see where the money comes from in the conventional sense, but the other skill set yep. you guys have is this technical ability to be able to move further down the supply chain. And I just wonder where your mindset is now. Do you go for the quick, easy money now and at some point give yourself the optionality? I just wonder, what are the conversations happening at board level? So look, I, I think you got to work out and, and you get back to, again, you know, it's, it's a trade-off between what, I mean, look, what the incremental value is of going further downstream, the capital uplift. I mean, you can't be all things to all people. So, you know, you, you, you have to temper your greed, um, you know, and sometimes you, you do have to sell out product, you know, or take it as, as, as far and you always have to leave someone for the rest of your table. And, and, you know, otherwise those guys are trying to develop markets that aren't there. Will they be there? I think they probably will be. But, you know, developing new markets is is – is different you know for 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 where we are there is a need if you're going to use vanadium in batteries there is a need for it to have a much less carboniferous footprint or co2 footprint than the existing supply chain like 70 percent of the world's vanadium comes as byproducts out of blast furnaces right so you know you got coal-fired uh, electricity for the furnaces and you've got coal in there as a reductant and byproducts and then you've got salt roast leach and you're using coal and natural gas to melt it and you know like if you go and have a look at the co2 footprint of vanadium if you keep using it as an additive in steel it doesn't make any difference if you're using it for batteries 
And these, and you're going to have lithium vanadium batteries, or you know, I see the Volkswagen guys are doing research into a nickel vanadium manganese battery. And by the way, guys, good luck and Godspeed. That'll be fantastic for us. Um, they will need, because, you know, that's one of the other parts we do is we have to monitor this for Jeremy, right? So looking after the ESG, if we're going to give that data, we're going to measure it. We're going to have life cycle analyses on the projects, on the products. It is a new, that's what we talked about, you know, with, with the, the sort of the ground shifting. Is it, okay, well, you're going to sell a product, but you're going to have to have an LCA on it. If they're going to use it in a battery supply chain or for any of these new green sustainables, you've got to you've got to be able to walk the walk as opposed to talk the talk. For, yeah, for, for for sure. Like when so this PFS is kicking off. You just awarded it to Hatch. Brilliant. Um, how long is that going to take? So when you, I'm trying to get when do we get real thirty June right? So when do we get some meaningful economics to this thing? PEA is one thing, but feasibility time yeah. is better. You 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 get that. Early next financial year. Brilliant. Um, you mentioned something I just want to talk. I want to finish off on if you don't mind. Sorry, sorry to take so much of your time, guys, but you've got so much going on. You've got you know fantastic projects. Um, is uh, we've Ian, only got the two. You've, we've only talked about two. I know. I know. I know. We could be here all day. Right. It's all good. Project developers. Project developers. Um, and we will come back. I'll, I, I promise to come back to you and you know once, uh, and talk and talk about the lithium refinery in Barambi. And I'm I'm actually particularly excited about your nickel project. That that just sounds insanely fantastic. Um, but ESG, you've just put out a report, pretty sizable report. A lot gone into. Is it just a marketing tool? Absolutely not. If it was just a marketing tool, Jeremy would be very upset. But I'd like to introduce Jeremy Mavanis, who's our GM for commercial and IR. And, and you know, ESG has got a crossover on, on both of his ballywicks, and I'll, I'll let him explain. Okay. Hey, Jeremy, how are you, sir? Very well, thanks, Matt. You need to explain a couple of things, Jeremy. What, what is a ballywick? What is he talking about? Oh, he's a crazy man. I, I can't define that one. I'm, I'm better with circular economies. Go on, um, Let, let's get serious. Let's, yeah. talk about, let's talk, about, talk about green circular economies and ESG. This report was pretty substantial. You put a lot of work into it. Why? Yeah, look, we did. It's, it's our inaugural sustainability and ESG report. I guess the answer to why is it certainly wasn't done just because it was topical. It's something that's been front of mind for us in a strategic sense for a long time. Um, projects are getting more mature now and it makes good sense to disclose better exactly what we're doing. Yes, it's topical, but it's it's definitely something that's been a foundation practice for a long time. Okay. So talk us through some of the things that you were focused on in there because, like I said, it's, it's a big topic. You were talking about it being fundamental to the ethos of the company and the projects that you're working on. It, I mean, let's face it, it's also a pretty good um, talking point um, when you're, you know, Bouncing around Europe and talking to these uh, big, you know, these governments who are putting a lot of money into this. I mean, are you telling them anything they didn't know? Um, I think we're putting it in a more concise fashion so it's easier to digest, that's for sure. Um, You know, the document, there's no real framework, if you like, for sustainability reports. There's guidelines. We followed something called GRI, which is a, a global reporting standard. Um, it's the big one. So we followed what companies a lot bigger than us do because I guess we've got strong conviction. We wanted to come out, draw a strong line in the sand and 
the idea is then every year thereafter we listen, we get feedback, and we just improve year on year. But as your projects get more mature, you have more hard data, you can set more quantifiable targets, you know, and it all starts to build on itself. So, you know, the document, it runs through some of the stuff you would see in an annual report. It talks about our project stage of development, but then it, it sort of hones in on how they relate to ESG. And it, it's, it shouldn't be forgotten that, the you know, the S relates to sustainability or rather E for environment, but you've got social and governance in there as well. So it talks about ticks a lot of different boxes. But is, is it changing the way that you guys are operating? I mean, could you cho- I mean Chris um, described, you know, you, you, you're after these kind of energy storage megatrends, you're after the EV revolution. I mean, has, it, has this process informed anything you're doing or is it just a means of capturing um, the processes and making sure there's agreement internally as to how you operate? I mean, how have you presented it internally? I think that's always a good start. Yeah. Well, internally, there's no question people the management team are very aware that it's it's very topical at present and the way we communicate and, uh, you know, display our narrative should at least be easy for people who are focused on that to understand. But honestly, this is something that we've been doing internally for a long time anyway. So I don't think we've necessarily changed our practices. We've, we've changed the way we capture some data so we can put this information together. Um, you asked both Mike and Chris some questions about the circular economy. And, you know, my take on that is really the, the OEMs in the value chain, particularly with batteries, are pretty interested in sourcing and disposal and provenance. And we literally come in to close the loop for them, particularly on the vanadium recovery, particularly on the battery recycling. So, your question, I think, was around, are we seeing a lot of unsolicited interest because of the green things we're doing? And the answer is absolutely, because now a lot of these big companies, they're very, very motivated. Their stakeholders are saying, show me how you close the loop. Show me how you contribute towards a circular economy. And, and honestly, we have been doing this for a while because the projects quite literally are generating materials for the circular economy but they're also doing it in a sustainable way. So, um, you know, it's just a, a neater way to describe what we're doing to people with that sort of a focus. Okay. And, you know, sorry to get all commercial on you here, but yeah, I understand the accountability component for the OEMs because they will be accountable to their their buyers, you know, the, the, yep. the, 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 the public. Um, but for you guys, when you're walking into the rooms of these large institutional funds, and some of them have also been putting the word ESG at the beginning of, of their uh, name yeah. now. They expect this of you, don't they? Yeah, look, absolutely. I think so. If you want to be taken seriously by the broad audience, you need to start, you know, making it clear how how you are accountable on these fronts, for sure. We've, we haven't been able to walk into too many people's offices of late. We've been doing more of this Zoom stuff. Yeah. But for sure, that it definitely helps with that that dialogue and and that's something now that we've got this document, I think we're a better place to go out and speak to ESG funds if you like. But the ironic thing is that, you know, I think ESG funds have got a range of filters and they're looking, you know, for things in terms of your resilience, your adaptability, your desire to innovate, um, 
you know, and to manage risk. But the reality is that most funds have those filters. They just don't call themselves ESG because they're the basic filters to run a good business and to attract and retain the best talent and do all those things. So, you know, it's important not from, a, you know, putting a slick narrative to your story. It's actually a, a great thing to run a good business. No, it, it absolutely is. But you're also held... It- because you're held to higher uh, level of accountability, uh, to higher standards ethically and otherwise, as a result of operating in this space, you know, you you, you just are. And do you think that holds you back yeah. in terms of the ability to be as profitable as you could be? No, I I don't think so at all. In fact, I think there's more opportunities that come by virtue of solving a problem for the people that I mean, we're accountable. Yes, I take your point so too is everyone else in the value chain. And by having a solve for some of these challenges, you're opening up the door to more revenue and more solutions and more value adding. So no, not at all. I think it's a huge opportunity. Okay. And um, I guess last one, do they understand the concept of a project developer, these funds? Uh, Look, I think the audience in Europe understands ESG. I think they understand project development probably a bit better than the audience in Australia. Um, but the, the ESG subject is shot to prominence for a couple of reasons. And strangely, in, at least in my mind, strangely, during COVID, you're seeing a lot more news of bigger focus, more government money being thrown at sustainability, um, you know, to get out of the economic situation, to stimulate economies. And, and I actually don't think that's unusual for the fact that I think COVID's triggered people in so far as there's a risk that no one expected. And, you know, if you want to take a surfing analogy, there's the first wave. But, you know, the next wave in that set that's going to blot out the horizon and drain all the water off the reef is something far bigger, and that's climate change. And, and uh, you know, awkwardly, that's something we've known about for a long time. So I think you're seeing people well, the globe scrambling to cover off on that, and you're seeing a lot of money you know, is stimulus spending being put towards it. And at the end of the day, that bodes very well for us because we're well well placed ahead of that. Okay. So this is the first report. Is this going to be an annual report that you put out? And, and, and what's, you know, you, you talked about um, how you've been able to, you know, have interacts internally and you've talked about OEMs and, and funds and so forth. But are there kind of initiatives which other people can get involved with or get behind in here that... You know, perhaps we should be aware of. Yeah, look, it is to your question. It's an annual thing. Um, you know, as part of all of this, I guess we've aligned ourselves to a few initiatives. Um, one of which is the UN Global Compact. You know, that's important. That that's sort of connected to the UN Sustainability Goals. And as a result of that, we have to make certain disclosures annually to show how we're aligning with their objectives. So we'll do that as well. You know, if, if people are inclined to read the document, I would encourage them to do it because she's a beauty. Um, you know, you'll see that we talk about some of the charitable giving and scholarships and some of the other things to do with social and governance. Um, otherwise, I'd just say year on year, you'll, you'll see improvements and it'll become clearer what we're doing and what we're targeting. Have a read, people. And I'm talking to some of the other CEOs out there. I think some of the mining companies really need to kind of step up to the plate. And I think uh, what you're doing is great. Jeremy, thank you very much um, for that run through. Um, 
would love to catch up with you separately on that because I think there's some fantastic things in there and people do read that. Chris, uh, I'm going to finish with you. Um, obviously, coming up towards the end of the year, it's been it's been a difficult year for some, but you guys seem to have made some big advances. Um, you happy with how your team's handled it? Yeah, absolutely. We uh, probably, on one or two of the projects, we're just running a couple of months behind. But, you know, I think in the wider context that, it's not really uh, been an issue. Uh, you know, we've got good partners in the jurisdictions that we're in and what we've been able to control. Everyone's done a fantastic job. And, uh, you know, being miners, uh, and it's summertime, it's actually the time to get stuff done for us. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, it's starting to warm up here. We'll take a, the odd mandatory sort of week or two around Christmas for everyone and we'll be... Uh, you know, we don't take the uh, foot off the gas for any of the projects. Okay, good stuff, guys. I appreciate your time. Um, let us know if anything crops up. You know, pick up the phone. I'd be delighted to hear from you, okay? Thank you very much, and uh, good luck to you. Keep well, and to, to all the viewers, thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and, of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming and we'll speak to you again soon.